0: We the and close Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick and give my thoughts and analysis. So in this episode, I'll be completing my series, my six-part series on Dick's 1957 novel, The Eye in the Sky. The Eye in the Sky is a novel of Cold War surveillance, a novel of false realities, and a novel about the delusion, delusional views of reality we all hold within ourselves. The conclusion of the novel is that, Most of us live in very distinct and very unique mental realms that cannot be known to outside observers. And this is ultimately a failure of the surveillance state. In a previous episode in the series, I compared this novel to The Man Who Japed because one of the things Dick plays with in The Man Who Japed is kind of a, a, a surveillance state that is very, it surveils people's moral behavior. But it's very fair in the sense that no one can be judged unless they're witnessed, doing something. But I think Dick questions whether any surveillance state can ever be that effective in Eye in the Sky because you can never really get into people's heads. And so when when we get into people's heads, it doesn't always conform to the outward behavior and actions. In fact, all the characters here seem to have a very different internal monologue than external, right? Especially two characters, Charlie McFay and Sylvester. Sylvester the old war veteran both of those have very radically different internal perspectives than what they present outwardly to the world this is also a novel about utopia and about how we try to create our worlds or reform them or improve them or change them and how doing so from our own point of view and from our own assumption of what is right and good for everyone else we end up often with very disastrous and troubling and painful results for for the others Uh, One of Dick's lessons here is that no reform effort will be successful because they're always gonna be based on our own mental illnesses. And in previous episodes, I talked about some of the themes that are clear in Eye in the Sky, such as the family, uh, the role of women in the kind of the modern American family. Uh, There's even themes of civil rights in this novel. There's certainly themes about mental illness, which Dick connects to our own personal subjectivities. Here And what, again, what seems normal to us is outwardly seen as a mental illness. And his best example of that is Joan Reese, a character who's a paranoid. She seems perfectly normal for much of the novel, but when she finally gets to establish a world based on her rules, it's a world in which everything is working against you. Where everything is based on uh, the assumption that whatever happens is done by design. There is no fate. There's nothing by accident. Everything is done according to the wishes of a malevolent force. Uh, now, of course, that's an insane way of looking at the world, but that is really how Joan Rees thinks the world functions. I suppose we can also say we have examples here of new religious movements, especially with Second Babism being described. It's something Dick is interested in in other works. In fact, in some of the works, especially he wrote the ones he writes in the 60s, he plays with the ideas of different dominant religions. There's a short story called The Black Box, and what's the dominant religion in the world and in the West is Buddhism in the man in the high castle the dominant kind of religious perspective is based on chinese religion with the with the Ching*. is the book of changes is used by people just to make basic decisions in life so dick does this a lot of playing with kind of the minority religion becoming a dominant religion he does this this way by taking basically a religious nut arthur sylvester and giving him the, the the ability to establish a world based on his laws and his perspective on on the universe Anyway, so there's a lot we can do with this novel, but it's time we we come to the end of it. So I'm just going to go over the last few chapters of the book, uh, summarize what we've seen up to now, go over the last few chapters, and then and then come to some overall conclusions and feelings about this about this novel. Okay, so uh, yeah, let's just review where where we've come. So this story begins in our world, in our real world, and it's a very Typical 1950s setting of a man in a secure, well, he's in a job that has a high level of security sensitivity, especially in the Cold War era. It's an electronics company, but it's got government contracts and he gets basically fired because his wife is, not, it's not proven she's a communist, but there's a high level of suspicion that she is a communist or she has too many pro-leftist ideas. So he's given the choice of his wife or his job, and he he quits. Now, the person who calls out his wife is actually his friend, um, Charlie McFaith. He invites them out to drinks, but first they tour the Bevatron particle deflator, and there an accident takes place. They fall into it, and five other people fall into it. They wake up later in a hospital, and... Most of the accident victims are completely fine, but one, Arthur Sylvester is seriously hurt. The Hamiltons go home with another woman, Joan Reese, this businesswoman, and they get into some uh, spat with her. And they're punished by some divine force by a swarm of locusts for, for this bickering. Now, by this point, the characters have already begun to think that something is wrong with the world and it doesn't seem to play by the normal rules. The best evidence of this, of course, is the swarm of locusts that sweeps through uh, the house and the yard. Now, one of the major differences in this world is that prayers are answered. And this leads to, and even farther than this. It seems that God is a real force in this world. This would be what the world was like if God was real, if he answered prayers, if he was demonstrably true in, in the universe. One of the people who was in the accident, Bill Laws, a black man and a tour guide, um, has a charm, for instance, that can cure by, by prayer. Now, Jack Hamilton kind of goes on with his life. He doesn't really know... He knows it's different, but he still sort of thinks he's in the real world. So he goes on, tries to find a job. He visits his old friend, Dr. Tillingford. And Tillingford gives an interview where we get a lot of commentary on what kind of world they're in. And we get weird things such as he's not paid in cash. He's paid in credits towards salvation. And he's taught that all his necessities of life will come to him through prayer. Manna literally comes from the sky. If you need money, you just ask God for money and he'll give it to you. Although he may not give you as much as you want, depending on how good you've been. And he learns that his job is, in the electronics company, is to be involved with theophonics, meaning the communication with God. So we learn that this is the God of Second Babism a new religious movement that developed in the American cities and followed by very, very few people. So instead of communism, the boss is worried about the sexual purity of his applicant. And so we get a second kind of surveillance state in the first world, the surveillance state, our world, the first the surveillance state was the anti-communist crusade. In this one, it's a kind of a religious crusade. It's about religious purity and, and faith. He is questioned on his faith by people who work in the company, a a man named Brady, and they actually get into a spirit, uh, a a test of will. And Brady is able to call in an angel to help him answer questions and actually help him win the challenge. Distraught by all this, he goes to a bar and he meets Charlie McFay there, and then they just start to discuss the changes that take place. Laws is also there with a prostitute named Silky. While in the bar, they investigate... This situation they learn more about how prayers work by jerry-rigging a cigarette machine to make an infinite amount of branding they learn that the cigarette machine doesn't work by having a supply of cigarettes that people put in there it basically works by prayer and they find that they can apply this prayer system to other products and make them allow it to make an infinite amount of, of whatever they want after drinking hamilton and mcfay go to an old second non-second bapt church which still exists The question is why they exist when it's clear that God of Second Babism is true. Um, I guess there's always some holdouts, right? While there, they ask for their umbrella to be blessed with holy water. And then after a prayer, they begin to rise up into the sky. As they ride up, they learn that the world they're living in is geocentric, that heaven and hell are real places, and that there's a giant eye in the sky looking over everyone. The umbrella catches fire and they fall to earth. They land near Cheyenne, Wyoming. Charlie McFay goes back to California, but Hamilton prays for some money and goes to the the central temple of second baptism, which is nearby. He wants to meet the, the kind of the central prophet, the central leader of this church. And while he goes to this big temple, he sees that Arthur Sylvester is one of the few people identified publicly as someone who's going to be saved and going to heaven. Hamilton therefore returns to California with this information, with this information ready to confront Sylvester. He sees that Marsha and Bill Laws have physically changed as well based on Sylvester's assumptions about radical women and about black people. So he's both racist and sexist. They go to the hospital and battle Sylvester who calls on divine help, but eventually they're able to knock him out. And this destroys his, his delusional reality and allows them to enter into a new world. When, they, when things get back to normal, they, they look around and they notice that although things have gone back, they haven't. They've also changed from what they expect most clearly Marsha has no sex organs. She's completely neutered as is everyone else. So their sex organs are gone. This world is that created by Edith Pritchett and she begins to abolish categories of things. She does not like such as Russia. Um, She abolishes sex. She abolishes a lot of other things that make her uncomfortable. Hamilton begins to make his way into this new world. He visits his friend Tillingford about a new job, about his new job, and he learns that now they're using electronics to facilitate the overall moral well-being of the lower classes, really to bring civilization to the poor. It's not about religion anymore. It's not about, you know, government contracts. It has a new function. So there, there's kind of this, the, the role of the job here in these different worlds plays a role in identifying what kind of world we're living in, we're existing in. He goes to the old bar which has been renamed and been transformed into kind of a folksy cafe where they serve a little bit of beer but it's kind of a sinless, sinless area. It's kind of nice and folksy and, and and cute and perfect and clean. He sees Silky there and takes her home and, and Silky has become friendly over the phone with Marsha. Jack learns that Marsha... When he goes back, he learns that Marcia likes the new world, is actually supportive of the changes, and then she actually makes some comments about the way men treat women in the old world and how this is maybe a little bit better. She's not the only character who likes this. Bill Laws also seems to like this world because she gets, he gets a good job in one of the few industries that Edith Pritchard has, has kept, and that is soap making. Angry at his wife, he tries to have a tryst with Silky, but he fails because obviously sex is no longer a category in this world. Eventually, though, Edith abolishes Silky and all women like her. Edith also abolishes the category of cats, angering Jack into action. He forms a conspiracy with Charlie McFay, Joan Reese, and Sylvester to stop her. They plan to use chloroform to put her down, to put her to sleep. The plan is never completed because during a picnic trip, Jack and the others manage to push Edith's world to its limit by convincing her to eradicate all categories, including some fundamental to existence. And as she does this more and more, her world begins to break down. They quickly wake up in another world that seems to be normal, but this is in fact a world controlled by Joan Reese, a paranoiac. She announces that she is creating the ideal world, every bit like the regular world, but perfected by her... Ability to establish a total security system That'll keep everyone safe And, and keep the world predictable and, and regular But her world is a very disturbing one In Hamilton's home they find a giant spider in the basement Which turns out to be silky They board up the basement And that's where I left off Now why a spider? Well it seems that Joan Reese is afraid of spiders And she's paranoid about spiders being in her home So in her world In the world she imposes on everyone else giant spiders exist in everyone's basement. Right? And there's a lot of other little examples of this throughout, you know, the few chapters we have in Joan Reese's world. But I noticed something here about the character of Silky. Silky in each world is established as a threat to some kind of order or some kind of a state, if you will. In the first world, it's she's a sinner, right? She's a barfly, she's a a a prostitute. In Edith's world, you know, Edith abolishes prostitutions, but it takes her a while to abolish Silky herself because Silky is still there as a threat to family and marriage. And that's the, that's the role she plays. She actually almost threatens Hamilton's marriage by trying to, basically, Jack Hamilton is attracted to her and tries to have this tryst with her. And in this world, it's this giant spider. So she's always presented as as a threatening character in all these worlds. Unfortunately, we don't really get Silky ever as a real Character, So I don't know what she's like in the real world or she's just a manifestation of these people's imaginations and delusions. Okay, so this allows us to get into the final chapters of this book. So the group decides that they must confront and kill Joan Reese to end this once, in a, once and for all. The world she's created is full of horrors, predators. Now, she insisted the world is normal, perfectly fine, but it's going to be regulated and observed and, you know, everything's going to be explained and in on the open. But since she's a paranoid, she literally thinks there's monsters behind every corner. And that's what everyone begins to experience. These are all products of her paranoid mind. They worry that that if def- even if they defeat Reese, she'll just be able to open up another world. And then they also worry that maybe they're going to have to work their way through eight different individual delusions. And this is a bit of my evidence that Dick had this in mind while writing this book, but he ran out of space, I think. And maybe he was playing with this idea of what what could we do if we had four the world? I think it's a shame he doesn't actually go that far because I really want to know how he sees a child's mind. And there's one child character, right? Edith Pritchett's son to see what how he interprets the world would have been a, a, a riot, I think. But anyways, Hamilton, though, insists that the remaining people and he's talking about him, uh, his wife, uh, the boy and Charlie are all realists and so they should this should be the last fantasy realm and I think that dick doesn't fully believe this I, I do think he's He's kind of on the side that there are eight distinct um, realms So he has the whole system breakdown rather than forcing this issue at the end of the novel, but I'll get to that at the end So in the kitchen Marsha is preparing coffee When a can falls on her foot so in this world a can falling on someone's foot is not an accident but a fully plotted scheme Now, this is how everything, again, happens in Reese's mind. Everything that happens is is a scheme. It's a plot. It's it's predestined by some malevolent force. A water faucet releases red blood into their cups. And they start to realize at this point that the house is actually a living thing in this world, another part of the paranoia of, of Joan Reese. The group tries to escape the house. And it smells like Reese's... Well, it smells like a man, and it, it appears that this house has become some kind of manifestation of Reese's boyfriend, and she's fearful of that, and this is a strong suggestion that Reese has been a victim of some kind of domestic abuse by her by her boyfriend, and that this is the cause of her, her paranoia and the cause of her, her mental illnesses. Now, Dick doesn't explore this as much as we, we perhaps would like, but there does seem to be some violence in in Joan Reese's background, explaining her character. And as they walk through the house, the, the house begins to take on more characteristics, particularly of a man's mouth. Edith Pritchett is consumed by the house. A few others, though, manage to escape out of the, the mouth door of the house. Joan Reese, though, confirms that she is in control of this world, appearing from the shadows. And, and in this, this delusion, she's less a character than she is a overarching force. She's more like the eye in the sky in this story. Hamilton brings out his gun, which only exists in this fantasy realm. And I suppose, again, in Reese's mind, everyone has a gun. He's able to use this to threaten Reese. Reese exposes this conspiracy to kill her. Bill Laws suddenly takes the form of a giant spider. Um, the others begin to attack and subdue Joan Reese, wrap her up in cocoon. It's all really wild and bizarre. But again, I think these are all... Basically, how Joan Reese looked at other people as serious threats and creatures and monsters. Eventually, it's David Pritchett who kills Joan Reese by feeding on her with his feeding tube. The world changes and they hope to return to the Bevatron, but they enter yet another world. McFay announces that this proves that he was right about Marsha. There is another delusional figure in the group. A fat man in a black car arrives. He turns out to be Guy Tillingford. He orders Jack Hamilton into the car because he's going to become a new test patient for the epidemiology labs. So, in chapter 14, we see the de- destruction of Joan Reese's world and the establishment of a new one that we're in. But this one's interesting. Joan Reese presented her world as eternal. She said, I'm going to create the ideal system that's going to last forever and it's going to be the most stable. Because I'm going to have control over it, but because she enters into this as a paranoid, as someone who's a you know someone who thinks everyone's out to get her, that becomes true. It, it it's it's inevitable. It's written into the way she looks at the world that someone's going to be out to get her, and it turns out all her friends are actually monsters. And this ends up being a very unstable system. Now, if you want to make a criticism of Stalinism here, or pretend Dick or think Dick is making a criticism of Stalinism, you could say that. I mean, one of the things kind of in a high school textbook version of Stalinism is that Stalin was a paranoid, right? And he had to you know, had to wipe out all the people who were against him within the party, right? He had these long lists of enemies, enemies of the state, he had to erase and all that. And then, you know, if you do that enough, eventually your entire system breaks down because if you can't trust, if you treat everyone as an enemy, eventually you will have enemies in there. And that's kind of the trap that Joan Reese um, falls into. But anyways, at the end of chapter four. 14 we find ourselves in a new world its nature is not yet undefined but a, the hint that we're in some kind of world of communism is suggested by the fact that Charlie McFay identifies Marsha as the creator of this world and she's been established from the beginning of the novel as a, probably a closet communist all right chapter 15 so they're in Guy Tillingford's Carr He's the boss, right? He, or he's Hamilton's new boss. He takes a different form in each of his roles. He doesn't appear in Joan Reese's version of reality, but he appears in the others. So he's carrying Jack Hamilton and the rest of the group, and it begins to dissolve into a shapeless hunk of metal as the world seems to collapse. And we, and we start to get more and more sense that the world is collapsing. And they start to see glimpses of their own bodies at the floor of the of the particle deflator room and, and their injuries. So it seems it's starting to break down. And this is how Dick is able to escape this trap he's in where he seems to have to almost write about eight distinct worlds. Now, when the world kind of restabilizes, they have to walk through a working class community in the midst of a riot. They start being pelted by bricks as rioters throw rocks at them and rocks at the car. They believe it's a simple matter to escape. They they said, this is Marsha's delusion. We only need to kill her. She's the source of this world, which to come out with it is a leftist stereotype of capitalist barbarism. capitalist barbarism. It's not a communist utopia. So in uh, Arthur Sylvester's world where he's a religious nut, he creates a kind of a religious utopia a world in which God does answer prayers. Now if the person who creates this world if she he whoever it is it turns out to someone else it's not Marcia but at this point we have, the, the story wants you to think it's Marcia then You would get at a communist utopia right well not quite because communism is a critique of capitalism especially at that time 1950s America communism exists more as a critique of the existing order not a utopian vision. Precisely so it's more this is how the world functions in the mind of uh, the communist critique of capitalism. At least that's what Dick's trying to say so you get all these exaggerations of like a totally repressed working class in open rebellion against their oppressors an aloof ruling class treating the working classes test patients in their epidemiology labs it's i mean that's what we get so it's a leftist stereotype of of the capitalist system now it's not a well-constructed world however and we see it's breaking down i think this isn't because the creator of this world is not a truthful about his beliefs or doesn't have hold of himself. I think for whatever reason, this entire world starts to break down. I think it's it had a deadline. Threats in the form of other leftist cliches are here as well. You know, there's 1930s gangsters who seem to be able to run roughshod over the working class and whoever they want. We have lynch mobs led by capitalists trying to kill bill laws. We have an active street riot emerging and on and on. Jack and Marcia Hamilton, Charlie McFay, and Bill Laws escape the worst of the riot, looking for the Hamilton house. And they go back to it. I think this is, I've talked about a few settings that show up again and again, like that bar, uh, Tillingford's office, and the Hamilton home. These are kind of the main bases from which we can compare how these worlds function. They find the Hamilton home in a neighborhood that's a total slum full of decadent establishments, gun shops, armed soldiers on the streets, and other, again, leftist stereotypes of of capitalism they go they weigh things out in the safe harbor bar which re-exists in this world as it did in some of the others the bar is full of working class teenagers being fed cheap lip liquor to numb their experience of their harsh working class life silky is in the bar too she's back in her role as a prostitute but she also is a loyalist to the communist cause and she's able to kind of share communist slogans and let, you know talk about the upcoming class war. So she's a good communist, a good working class rebel. They learn actually that the bar is a cover for a communist party cell altogether. Jack Hamilton goes back to his old role of flirting with Silky. And while he does this, he shoots Marsha in the chest with a rifle in hopes that by killing her, they'll finally be able to escape these delusion delusions and enter the real world once and for all. But the fantasy realm doesn't break apart. And they realize that this world was not Marsha's creation. Now by this point in the story you know that sh- shooting someone doesn't have real life consequences because people have died in other realities but they've come back in various forms. So killing Marcia is not you know it doesn't it's, it's not as bad as it sounds although I don't know you know you in know a, in a in a simulation you know is it easier to you know is it still difficult to kill loved ones in a simulation that's I guess a question for Um, VR users and this brings us to the final chapter of the book so with if it's not Marsha who is it is the question we're left with and it's answered right away in chapter 16 Charlie McFay changes and grows and he transforms into a massive golden deity a strong ideal figure known as Comrade Commissioner McFay confesses to Hamilton that he's been a communist since the Great Depression he says that he is he tried to Marsha as a communist, not because she's a communist, but because she's dangerous to leftist politics. She's more of a she's more of a threat to the left than she is to, you know, the, the, the capitalist system itself. He says that she's a dabbler in politics. She clings to the quote, cult of individualism and she can't be trustworthy as a member of the leftist movement. That's why he didn't like her and wanted to out her. Hamilton attacks McFay, but he's quickly overcome by his power and his party loyal workmen that surround him in this bar. The evidence that they are in the Bevatron, though, becomes more visible as workmen knock out out McFay and other accident victims appear on the ground around him. So the real world starts to emerge. So whatever had happened to them is ending. And now all this took place. This whole novel takes place just a mere seconds in, in in the real world. So it just seems it's like a they're, they're accelerated delusions brought about by the accident, but they're very, they're limited. They weren't going to be here forever. There wasn't really a way to get trapped in here. That's how I read it anyways. There's nothing that they really do within the world that seems to break it down, like they like with um, the Edith Pritchett or the Sylvester delusions. There they took action that seemed to end that, end that particular delusion. Here it just seems to break apart. Now, back in the real world, we hope, <laughs> Colonel T.E. Edwards listens to Jack Hamilton's report that Charlie McFay is a real communist. Now, of course, Jack Hamilton's evidence is pretty got to be pretty flaky. It's like, why? how to a joint dream with him where he revealed he's a communist that I guess that would be his evidence. But he does try to make this case. Um, but at the same time, he doesn't have direct evidence that Marsh is not a communist. He tries to prove that McFay was using his position to root out potential party enemies. And so it had really it was really about internal communist politics rather than his role as a security agent for this um, government contractor but he argues that the same principle should be applied broadly if Marsha cannot be given the benefit of the doubt as being a loyal american neither should mcfay and therefore the accusation should be enough to get the guy fired but they're unable to reach an agreement edwards is edwards by the way is is uh, Hamilton's old boss I guess he still has the job at this point He hasn't yet um, been totally fired So unable to reach an agreement Edwards talks about Hamilton's future And Hamilton decides he's not going to go to He's going to quit his job With this company But he's not going to go work for another big corporation And he's not going to get a job with Guy Tillingford and he decides he's not too sore about leaving the defense industry altogether. He said he never was a fan of the security culture and the building of weapons of war anyways. Hamilton and Bill Laws decide to start up an electronics company together. So you get a little kind of a hint of interracial cooperation at the point. Now, racial politics isn't a major theme in this novel by any stretch of the imagination. But there is this hint of it at the end in which Hamilton and Bill Laws decide to start this company together. They're gonna work out a small of a small set shed making phonographs and headphone receivers for listening to them, really building off of the things they love, which is classical music. And this is really Dick's dream, I think, to a degree. Is he always loved music and he liked working in a record store for a while, so that's it seems that's something he really wanted. I and mean, some of it, I think his attraction to Tinkerers comes from you know, his 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 fondness for phonographs. He discusses his plans with the Pritchetts. Edith agrees that Hamilton, with Hamilton about the need for a strong cultural foundation to civilization. They, they may not agree on the details of what that strong cultural foundation might be, but they find grounds to agree. And Edith agrees to invest some of her money in the beginning of The Small Firm. So that's the end of the novel. We end up with a very, very optimistic story, although there's a lot of pessimism in there, especially in the way people's internal... Logic plays out and how it they end up being very oppressive and very irrational and 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 strange But still in the real world these characters are are able to come some agreement and I think it's interesting that edith Is chosen to be a character who is going to work with hamilton on? culture something that they disagreed very firmly about inside the mental realms inside these delusions and it actually was a big source of conflict over over music, right? I think Edith, in her in her world, abolished abolished like Stravinsky and Bartok music that Hamilton very much liked. So there is possibilities in the real world for people to overcome their their subjectivities and work together on a project. And so I think we do get a nice kind of optimistic conclusion to the story. Anyways, I've been talking about this novel for a really long time, over six episodes, so I don't have that much more to say about it. It's I talked about its themes throughout the different episodes, um, and I reviewed them a little bit at the beginning here. So I'm just gonna sort of leave it, but but really recommend it. I think it's it's one of his great novels. It's it sh- certainly should get a little bit more respect. I think this is one of his more like filmable novels. Actually, I think this would be one that would really work well. Well, if it would be filmed, I don't know why you no know, one's attempted it or picked it up. You know especially nowadays maybe there's other works like existence that kind of play with the same themes but i think this does it in a different way because it's really about how we're all deluded in in various ways i I think that's a really fascinating theme and i I like how dick handles it here Um, i have very few complaints about it other than you know i I do get the feeling he wanted to write about all eight different delusions eventually and he he ran out of time i think the pacing is Especially towards the end a bit rushed But I love the characters in this novel I think it's the strongest characters In a Dick novel up to this point There's going to be other novels that have strong characters And and well-developed characters later on But this is, I think, the first The first of his novels where he has characters You can really sort of take with you After you read them So anyways, Eye in the Sky uh, A great one, I really recommend it And it's a lot of fun too It's actually hilarious at times it's it's really laugh out loud funny from time to time so that will do it with this episode and so that will do it for eye in the sky looking ahead i'm going to look at the short stories dick wrote in 1957 and there are three of them i think they're misadjustment null O, and and one more i forgot what it's called but you know i'll look at three stories and then i'll go back to the novels of the novel of 1958 which is what's the name of the time out of joint so anyways thank you so much for listening if you have any of your own comments about eye in the sky please leave them below or you can send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com and um i'll be back with with the stories of 1957 Moses, my tired thoughts warm that leaves mm-hmm.